this is my, this is, I'm there for a week. I'm in the country for a week. And we are running down the stairwell to hang out in the bomb shelter and wait for the all clear. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success. And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today has traveled the world, and she tells her story in The Same River Twice, a memoir of dirtbag backpackers, bomb shelters, and bad travel. Her name is Pam Mandel. Her work has appeared in Lonely Planet, The San Francisco Chronicle, AAA's Via Magazine, G Adventures, and more. She's won a handful of Best Travel Writing Awards, and her work's been included in Best Women's Travel Writing Compilation in 2018. You can learn more about Pam by visiting her blog, nerdseyeview.com. What a great URL. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Pam Mandel. Pam, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. Pam, will you tell me, please, what is life about? I've been thinking about this, and um, I think life is about breakfast, Okay, life. So I've heard a lot of answers to this question, but I've never heard breakfast. Tell me more. So here's the thing about breakfast. When you get up in the morning, it's how you start your day. It fuels your day. It is the gas in your tank. It is the electricity in your engine. Uh, it is the thing that you squish into a diner booth and share with your friends when you are very much at your truest self. Breakfast is unpretentious. Uh, it is low key. Even a bad breakfast is better than no breakfast at all. So it's one of the few meals that you can go eat out and that restaurants rarely screw up. You rarely get a bad breakfast when you go out. And I think about how breakfast is this, uh, this symbol of your most basic human needs getting met. Mm. I like that. I, I can see that. I don't squeeze into a booth with friends for breakfast often. And usually when I do, you know, back in the good old days before the pandemic, it yes. was only because I had stayed up all night <laughs> and it was usually right. like a Denny's or a Waffle House or something. But that's also a super real experience, right? Yeah, you stayed sure. up all night. You're out with your friends. There are four places open at 4 a.m. And yep. you are very much yourself in that moment. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think, and I, also I think about the universality, if that's a word, I think that's a word it is. Yeah, of sure. breakfast where, where it's a thing that everybody wants and it doesn't matter if it's, you know, you have a cappuccino and a biscotti in Italy and you get pho in Vietnam and here in the U.S. you get, which I, what I think is the best breakfast. Like I think American breakfasts yeah. are everything, yeah. but we're all starting our day. We're all sort of showing up at the table and starting our day in this one place. And breakfast is sort of the moment where all that happens, where you decide like you're going to chart your course for the day and you're going to eat your toast and you're going to embark on whatever that day holds for you. I love it. I love it. It's uh, literally and metaphorically, perhaps life is about breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. I realize it's perhaps an unfair question to ask you who you are. <laughs> so it can be a very challenging question for any one of us to answer. But 
if you're asked that, or if you're maybe introduced from a stage or when you do one of these podcasts, how do you typically like to answer that question? Who are you? I say nowadays, I very firmly say I am a writer. Um, I have a longer bio, which I sort of throw around and things. I say that I'm an XC list rock star. I say that I'm a traveler. I say that I am a um, caretaker to a small and full of personality dog. But the thing that I say first and foremost is that I'm a writer. Mm. When did you first realize you were? Ooh, that's a really interesting question, actually. So what I realize in retrospect is that I have always been a writer and my actually owning it in this capacity has taken a very long time. So there's, there's a convergence of the paths of doing the work and then realizing that I have done it. And there are two sort of different things, right? So I have been involved in the process of writing for a very long time. Even as a kid, I like to write things. But, and then as a, as a profession where people have paid me to write, I've been a writer for maybe 30 years. And I think of that as maybe I'm a small W writer. I write for a living, I write copy. I've done all these other things. And then with the recent publication of my book, I now consider myself a writer, capital W. So as an author, there's a different kind of sheen on it. And that's not in any way to diminish the, the sort of small W work of being a writer, because that's how I've made my living for almost 30 years now. So it's a, it feels different. There's a different sort of flavor to it. And it feels more like saying I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. I'm an artist who is, who is a writer, who is an author, but I still like to sort of distill it all down to like, I'm a writer because I'm almost always a writer and the kind of thing I am writing varies from day to day. Yeah. I understand that you once wrote captions for Microsoft. That was part of your writing. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. I was a caption writer for Encarta, which was the, um, the online, the CD-ROM encyclopedia. It was my first job as I think it was my first real job as a writer and I would show up and in my basically my inbox would be this stack of photos and some years they would some years excuse me some days they would be pictures of geologic features around the world and some days they would be a stack of political figures from African nations and some days they would be plants and my job was to caption the images that would live in the articles. I loved that job. It was a great job. Super strict character count, right? I had to write to very strict rules. They had to be factually accurate and engaging and pithy, which is a word I love, because I had to explain a whole lot of information all at once about a single image. Mm. What great practice. Reminds me of Hemingway with the limitations on the, like the telegraph. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or I remember reading a story about Ray Bradbury where the, the only typewriter he had access to worked on dimes. So, <laughs> so he had to learn to be very concise and right. economical with this language. Right. The other thing that, that I love about it in, when I think about it in retrospect is, you know, Twitter is such a big thing now. And yeah. I spent a year and a half training on how to use Twitter 
before Twitter even existed because I worked as a caption writer. That's great. Yeah. So the book you've written, I, I finished this book last week and I really enjoyed it. It wasn't the kind of book I normally would pick up. Uh, I don't read a lot of memoirs or travel writing, but this was both and more, I think, right? The book, The Same River Twice, a memoir of dirtbag backpackers, bomb shelters, and bad travel. Who did you write this book for and why? Partly I wrote it for myself to be really honest, right? Like I had been carrying around this story in the back of my head for a long time. I am 17, 18, 19 when most of this book takes place. And I am now in my mid fifties. I've been carrying this story around for a very, very long time. And now is the part where I confess to you some very real things, which is that I've been suffering from a deep, dark depression, a medical depression. And I had been, you know, in therapy and seeing a doctor and doing all this stuff. And at the same time, a friend of mine had started a travel magazine called Fields and Stations. And so my friend, Alex, who started this magazine, he said, I really want you to write a piece for the back of the book. I have this slot saved for a sort of memory recollection, and I would really like you to write me a story for this. And I said, Alex, I'm sorry. I'm going through some shit. I'm in the hole. I don't have a lot of creativity available to me right now. I don't think I can do this for you. I don't think I can do it. And he said, that's fine. I want you to think about it. Um, I would love to have a story from you. Just know that this is something I want. And if you're feeling like the light bulb goes on, please contact me. This did not happen. The light bulb did not go on. And maybe every month or so, Alex would email me because he was still just launching this project. He would email me and say, please write this thing for me. And I was like, you know, I'm still dealing with like trying to crawl out of this black hole and trying to figure out what does, what does it look like to even be able to get my regular work done? And you're asking me for this creative thing. So one day we were talking and he said to me, did you tell me once that you had been in the Sinai Peninsula down at Sharm el-Sheikh before it went back to Egypt? And I said, yes, I did do that. That was a really long time ago. I was 18, 19. I don't remember very much about it. And he said, it would be amazing if you could write me a piece about that. And I said, so Alex, you know, I told you already, I'm in this place and it's, there's no light there. And I don't think I can do this for you, but I'll think about it. And I put down the phone and I turned on my computer and I wrote 1600 words for my friend, Alex, and I sent it over and he said, what the hell happened? And I said, I guess you asked the right question. And so I wrote him this essay that's in the back of the inaugural issue of this magazine. But once I had found that little thread to pull on, I couldn't stop. It just unraveled everything. Everything just, it was like, I opened the box and let the genie out. I, I took the sweater apart, I, whatever metaphor you want to use here for, for everything, just, you know, Dorothy lands in Oz and everything's in color. All of a sudden it was all, and it was this very whole thing in my head that I was like, well, I guess I better write all this down. Uh, and, you know, four months later, I had a first draft. I was uh, weirdly inspired. And it was Alex asking me to tap this very specific moment that made me realize, oh, I've been carrying this around for a long time. Wouldn't it be nice to put that down? 
Wouldn't it be nice to not have that taking up space in my mental attic any longer? Wouldn't it be nice to just have that be out so you can move on? Yeah. So um, I don't want to downplay the role that all the other things that I had to do to recover from this dark depression played in my becoming a healthy person again, but actually making space in my head by putting this story down and out into the world was a super healing process. So when I say, this is a very long answer, but when you ask me, who did you write this book for? When I say I wrote it for me, that's why I say that. And that's why I say I wrote it for me first. Now it turns out to have a broader life and to have a broader appeal. And I am grateful for that. But the initial process was me just saying, maybe stop carrying this heavy thing around and put it down. I bet you'll feel better. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I have a, my oldest daughter is 17 and I told her at dinner the other night that I want her to read this book. It deals with things that I've not experienced firsthand. You mentioned places I haven't been and experiences that I'll never have. Thank goodness on some of those, (laughs) Um, but just let me ask this question about, um, I want to ask this thing about healing because as I just acknowledged, some of what you talk about in the book is, is pretty heavy. Um, you know, challenges, very existential, you know, challenges when, with your parents' divorce and your new stepmom and abuse that you endured and the silence that you observed during that. Um, I'm just thinking of where, where to go with this question, because there's this thing about healing. I have this, I have this question about the healing that writing the book was, or has been for you. Yeah. I have a question about, um, I have a question. I'm, I'm really curious to know, you know, like you left your brothers out. <laughs> yes. And, and I understand your dad died before the book was published. Yes. So I'm, I'm, one of my questions at some point here is about how did you write about people? You know, I don't know if Alistair is Alistair's real name, but right. So you've changed names of, of some people and so forth. So I have this question about how you wrote about people because I imagine that could be very challenging. Um, where should we go? Where should we go with the conversation? This is a lot to unpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about the heat. And I want to acknowledge too what you've said about depression because I understand. I it's something I've experienced, been been diagnosed with officially, which I like yeah, and don't I think, like. I think that's a valid like that's a valid distinction too. There's a lot going on in the world right now. I was I had been for a period of about five years, I had been diagnosed a couple of times with what they call situational depression, which I think we are all feeling a lot of right now, which is circumstances are very difficult. We don't have a lot of control over what's going on. And we feel the strain of trying to exist in this world that we live in right now. But there's also this clinical depression, which is a much deeper situation. And it's not the same thing as saying, oh, I'm really depressed about the pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm super depressed about the pandemic, but I'm not actually depressed. And I know personally the difference now. So I think that's always a really important distinction to make when you talk about, when you talk about healing and you talk about depression, like I was not just sad. I was 
unable to complete the tasks I needed to do to get my to get through my day. Now I'm sad and frustrated and angry. And, you know, I have a lot of feelings um, and depression. When you are genuinely depressed, you don't have a lot of feelings. You have the absence of those feelings. Right. Yeah. So when you get back to your anger or your sadness or your grief, you're becoming a healthier person because you're experiencing those emotions. When you're depressed, they're just, it's just this sea of gray. Yeah. It's like muted. Yeah. Right? And, 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 and I just wanted, not that you need my acknowledgement, but I, I did want to, I do want to acknowledge you for this. The, what I see as a, a real strength in, in you of saying no, when certain people attempted to reenter your life or saying yes to things like going to college, which you write in the book at that point in your life, going enrolling in college was as possible as go, it occurred to you as possible as going to the moon. Like it seemed impossible, but you did it right. And you, you ultimately found a way of living that has worked for you and that involved moving out of Southern California and so forth. But I realized that I might like anybody listening might not have the context for this because there's the experience that with your family, you know, basically your parents sending you to Israel in the first place. Right. And then people you met and then traveled with from there. So maybe we can talk about that. The kibbutz, Israel, <laughs> travel. Right, right, right. You want me to just set it up a little bit? Please, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so the context of the book, while this is not truly what the book is about, is a trip that I took when I was 17. After I graduated from high school, my father signed me up for what is now known as a birthright tour. And good Jewish kids go at, to Israel to learn sort of about life in the homeland, to become one with the tribe, to sort of bond with the next generation of Israelis. It's really a recruiting program for young Zionists, right? They're trying to, they're trying to forge a bond in these impressionable young people between Jewish kids from around the world and the Israeli homeland. And so my father sent me to go onto this on this trip, probably a week after I arrived. The PLO, they were still the PLO at the time, started throwing bombs over the border into Israel. And one of the earliest experiences I had while I was there, I was out for dinner with one of my fellow uh, travelers. They sent us into town to have dinner with a local family and we got shelled. And early in the book, this is my, this is, I'm there for a week. I'm in the country for a week and we are running down the stairwell to hang out in the bomb shelter and wait for the all clear. So this is where the book starts <laughs> and things I don't think get better. <laughs> I'm laughing because to me, it's so absurd in retrospect it's not a funny book. It's not a funny story. But to me as a human, when I look back through the lens of time and I think that was crazy. Uh, so that, that's why I'm laughing. I'm not laughing because it's comic. I'm laughing because it's so it's absurd. Yeah. Right. And so things get things get crazier. They get crazier still uh, because um, my father is undergoing an investigation and when and so they are so preoccupied that basically I feel like they forget I exist or they're like, oh, you're fine. You're living in a war zone. It's fine. These Israelis should take care of you. It's fine. So I because of this, this sort of complicated set of circumstances, I embark on this not quite global journey, half the world. 
and things go badly. I have a bad boyfriend, I get very sick, I run out of money, I'd like all kinds of down and out in Paris and London things happen to me. Um, that book by Orwell, it's Orwell, right? Uh, I hope I'm right about that. I'm pretty sure it's Orwell. Uh, so all kinds of down and out in Paris and London things happen to me, except I like down and out in Karachi and New Delhi instead. And yeah, that's what the book covers. This, this like things just progressively get worse. And towards the end, I'm like, this is, what am I, what am I doing? This can't, I can't keep doing this. This is, and there's a tension, which I still under, which I understand in retrospect. And I still understand as a person who has terrific wanderlust and loves to be in the world, there's a tension between the insanity of adventure and doing sensible things. Yeah. And eventually I sacrifice the insanity of adventure to do the sensible thing. It's, it's really remarkable because in some ways it's so romantic, this idea of traveling with nothing, being just with your boyfriend or a partner, not like having a loose itinerary, surviving by your wits, you know, having this destination in mind that's like, hey, Paris, Athens, and then we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's aspects of it that, that I think are lives. There are literally millions of people now sitting at home wishing they were engaged in, but how often we do set off on some sort of adventure and then we wish we were back home or somewhere else. Um, and even when you did come home, so you describe some of these challenges and then, well, let me ask about this as one challenge, because it was a challenge that didn't, that is, it was a challenge that persisted with you, which was the abusive relationship you were in. Right. Will you talk about the challenge that that was and how you, how you survived or dealt with that? I'm, I'm thinking, um, I mean, it was, it was, it's funny because it's not, again, it's a thing that's not funny. It's not funny at all. Uh, it's strange because let me back up. I'm going to try this again. One of the things that I learned doing some reading afterwards is that you can, you start to normalize circumstances, right? When things happen over and over again, you're like, this is just how things are. This is how things are. You, be you become, it's the boiling frog thing, right? Yeah. You are, you, you are in the hot, the water is getting hotter and you don't notice it. You think that this is how things are. This is how things are always going to be. You, you cede a certain amount of control to the pressure of being cooked, right? Hmm. Um, so when I think about putting up with that, I think about that. But I also think about some things that were external, which I write about when I talk about the stuff that was going on with my father, for example, um, people were not listening to what I was saying. Like there's a whole lot of people not listening in this book. I'm saying some things and they're not listening. They are not hearing them. There's a bit where I talk to my dad and I'm like, yeah, dad, it looks like there's going to be war. And he's like, it seems like you're going to be okay. And I'm like, did he hear me? Because I just said that I'm in a country that's going to go to war. And so there's a lot of not being listened to. And that goes on for, for enough time. You start to feel invisible. Like you're not being heard. Yeah. Right. And so that 
diminishes your, your strength. It diminishes your fire. The thing that I don't understand, even now, many, many years later, is what, where did I get the strength to say, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. You, like you guys are the adults and I'm going to make you be the adults and I need that to happen. And you don't get a say in this. This is your responsibility. I'm giving it back to you. And I don't know where that came from. I genuinely do not know. I'm just thinking about, I've got a couple of the, of the lines from the book in front of me about this. You write, when nobody's treated you right for a while, you forget what it's supposed to look like. Right. And then you also write also being treated badly is embarrassing. It feels like you must have done something wrong. It feels like it's somehow your fault because nothing about it makes any sense. It's unbelievable too. I literally could not believe what had happened. Right. You said of, of some of, of this abuse. And, and I think many people look at this and wonder like, how could a person end up in that relationship in that kind of relationship? How could they stay in that relationship? Many people seem to follow a pattern of relationships. So they leave a specific person, but then somehow find themselves in that same basic circumstance. And I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is related to the depression or the healing or, or anything, if this is part of what you wanted to express and kind of get out of your head or put down, so to speak through having written it. But, um, what's your, what's your take on it now that, I mean, like you said, this was like 30 years ago. So you've been my, carrying this for a long time. My take on my take on which part of it specifically so my- on the idea of, okay, so I'm, I'm asking because let me, let me go to this part. You write in the book at the, near the end of the book, you talk about, and I'm actually going to pull it up if that's okay. Please. Um, So all right, the editors are gonna work overtime on this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this one is right here. And I think it's in the very back, along with the I don't know if it's with the acknowledgments. But you say right here, I did a final paragraph of the book, not even in the narrative part, but after the acknowledgements where it says, finally, note to whoever needs to hear this. I know why you are silent. I know why you stayed. It is never too late to tell your story. You deserve so much better. I believe you. Yeah. So tell me about, tell me about that. So that is the end of this book makes me still makes me so emotional. Um, that is what I needed to hear when I was so much younger, right? If somebody had said, oh, you deserve better than this. Um, I understand why this situation is difficult for you to get out of. I get it. I get how you got stuck here. Mm -hmm. Let's get you out. Uh, let's, um, I needed so badly to hear that, uh, that what I, what I said was true, right? That these things are really happening. Like, again, if I talk again about my, that example of me saying to my dad on the phone, like, oh yeah, I think there's going to be war. And my dad saying, oh, let me know what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is that's crazy. Like that's not listening. So, um, so anybody who's carrying around this kind of experience, this kind of, of story, uh, 
I think the reason they don't get out or, or what makes it difficult to get out is it's not just the shame. It's that they are not heard and your voice gets smaller and smaller through the course of living in this kind of experience. It becomes harder and harder for you to speak up and you don't think you're going to be believed and you don't think you're valued. And so saying that, saying like, I believe you, you deserve better. Like I'm saying that to myself back through time first and foremost, but I'm also saying it to, to really like, just like I said, to anybody who needs to hear it. Right. Yeah. Like this is the un- I thing that I learned. So I didn't embark in writing this book thinking that I would become a voice against domestic violence, for example. Right. right? This is very surprising to me. Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be when I think about it just at externally, at, for empirically, objectively mm-hmm. from the outside. There's domestic violence. There's a central relationship in the book that is a domestic violence relationship. But I looked this up recently and it was something like, what was it? Like one in four women have suffered from domestic violence. And uh, it was it was higher for men, but it exists. And the thing that I thought when I saw that was not, oh, that's too much. I mean, of course it's too much. One in four, 25% of women should not be experiencing this. And, and I forgive me for not fact-checking this before we talk, but it's an outrageous statistic. Yeah. And then the thing that I thought was, that statistic is based on stories they know. Right. Right. That statistic leaves out the stories that are not told. Yeah. And so it is higher. I guarantee you it is higher because I am that statistic. And I carried it around for almost 40 years. Yeah. So if we don't, if we don't uh, encourage people to drop these stories into the world, uh, they, they don't get told and these things don't get fixed. Yeah. Yeah. And hearing you, you know, wonder of where did I get that strength, you know, to, to leave that kind of relationship um, to change my circumstances. I think there's something really beautiful in that about, I think of that, the quote I heard from, I think it was Grace Lee Boggs about, we are the leaders we've been waiting for. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like you became in some way, perhaps the parent you didn't have, you yeah. were able to parent yourself or to be the adult or whatever. And, and what I hope is that we all have that capacity to be the one we wish we had as our caregiver or our teacher or nurturer, or whatever. And you were able to do that. And I think it's, um, I think it's just a really beautiful example. One of the other things though, that I think about also, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thought and I, I like that idea a lot, but one of the things that I think about also is that the, one of the things that threads through this book is that strangers were unfailingly kind mm-hmm. on my adventures. They were generous. They gave us beds. They fed me. They helped me out. They were the people that I wanted them to be. And they were what I wanted for what I wanted everyone to be. The people who are problematic in this book are people I know. They were not strangers. And all of those strangers were beautiful guidelines or models for what things could be like, Mm. right? Their generosity, their kindness, their willingness to help in weird little circumstances, even a, something as simple as picking me up when I was hitchhiking and asking me like, why are you out here hitchhiking alone, girl? I got to make sure you get to where you're going safe. Right. This is a thing that happened a lot, right. That these, you know, here, like I am 17, 18, 19 and I'm hitchhiking by myself 
And these middle-aged men would pick me up and be like, what are you doing? If my daughter was out here, I would be so angry. Where do you need to go? I'm going to see you to the door, right? So there was also the sense that those people exist and are possible, right? They, I was constantly being given examples from strangers in the broader world of the goodness that people can provide. Yeah, I, I think that's so. I think that's beautiful too, because it's so easy to look at the news and think like everything is wrong and the world is full of terrorists, or you know. And there is, of course, a lot of division, and you know, there are people who will hurt you if they have the chance and things like that. But I think, by and large, to go travel the world and have these experiences, I had the opportunity to visit Egypt twenty years ago, so it's been a while. But I was out in places that tourists don't normally go and people would occasionally come up and in English say, where are you from? And I would say the United States and they would say, welcome to Egypt and then leave. <laughs> like that was it. <laughs> right. Know? And it, right. it was so I, I mean, even those little little things that help me dispel this idea that like everything is wrong and foreigners are bad and, you know, things like that. And it's a super joyful thing. I was on a safari in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. This is five years ago now, maybe more, might be coming up to seven. And uh, often people would ask me where I was from and then they would say, how's Obama? Like I knew him, <laughs> you know, in Kenya specifically, they were so happy to meet an American and they would like, there was some kind of universal connection to me to the white house, you know, and I, I would say, I think he's okay. I guess, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it was, it was this very um, welcoming, uh, joyful, sometimes a little bit, a little bit teasing, right? Like, you know, but, but good nature, general, generally very, very good nature. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, with your, so let me ask this before we transition to the enlightening Latin around two last questions in this section. One is how you might, I know you probably touched on this a little earlier, but how is your life different now that this book is published? It hasn't been out that long. It came out in November and I, so I'm still experiencing, well, I'm on your show. <laughs> that's new, but there are new people coming into my life because of this book. And I love that. So that's exciting. I, but, but in general, it's, I feel like it's still unfolding. Like it's too soon for me to answer that question. I do seriously feel lighter now that it's done. There's, there's literally, I feel like I cleaned out the attic. Right. And so that's great, but it's still, it's only been, it's not even been six months yet. Mm, so I feel like I'm still learning what it means to have this book out and to have told this story. Okay. All right. Well, then with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. And we'll talk about writing and anything else you want before we wrap up. Cool. Let's do it. Does that work? All right. Awesome. Okay. Again, this is a series of brief questions. You're welcome <laughs> to answer as long as you want. But right. my, my aim for the most part is to simply ask the question, stand aside and keep us moving. Okay. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a. Well, I have to say it's like a diner breakfast. <laughs> I'm, I'm sensing a theme. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing the uh, famous investor and technologist Peter Thiel's question. Uh, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Hmm. 
popularity aligns with quality. Okay. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Wow. Right now I want it to say, wear your mask. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often? There are two that I just can never get out of my head. Oh, there's a third one. Shoot. Um, So there's the book that I loved more than anything as a kid was Alice in Wonderland. I think of that as being the first travel book I ever read. She falls into the rabbit hole and then all kinds of crazy things happens. She has all these adventures. She meets all these characters. I believe Alice in Wonderland to be a perfect travel book. And that is absolutely my favorite. My second one is... 100 Years of Solitude, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is so poetic, so beautiful. The writing, it gives me goosebumps every time I read it. And a thing that doing a lot of travel has taught me is that magic realism is just realism. I, if you pay attention, all kinds of crazy things are happening in the world around you. And Marquez presents these things as somewhat magical. And I wonder in retrospect, if he didn't see a lot of this stuff firsthand in his life, because I have seen some things and I think, did I see that? Yeah, I I saw that, that was real. So hundred years of solitude. And then recently, I guess it was last year, I read this book called Sharks in the Time of Saviors. Um, Kawhi Strong, oh shoot, I'm going to look up his name right now because I really should say his name one sec. Forgive me, production guy, because you're going to have to trim this. Uh, Sharks, time. Kawhi Strong Washburn. The, so uh, here we go. Um, where's my window? There it is. So the, the third one is Sharks in the Time of Saviors. That's Kawhi Strong Washburn. And it's about Hawaii, but it is about so much more. It is also very much a magic realism kind of book. But Hawaii is one of my favorite places. And I've spent a lot of time there. And I've spent time specifically in the town, this family that he writes about calls home. And when he writes about these magical things that happen there, I'm, I feel like I believe that they are true. I love that book. I think everybody should read that book. It's, it's, it's remarkable. I'm waiting for the movie. That's fun. Yeah. I would definitely check that out. I haven't heard of that one. So good. Oh my God. So good. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for that. Question number five. This one's about travel. So feel free if this one expands a bit because you have so much yeah. experience with travel. Here. Um, but the question is, what's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? So the standard bit of advice, which I still try to hold to is half the stuff, twice the money, right? This is pretty old school, half the stuff, twice that you do not need to carry that stuff. And, you know, I still screw up a lot of stuff when I travel. I go to the airport, on the, I've been to the airport on the wrong day. I've boarded the train on the wrong day. I've done all these things. And Every time I make a mistake, I learn something new. So I really never sweat the mistakes. Um, That's maybe not a hack. It's more a philosophy than a hack, which is not to worry about the 
logistics stuff that goes wrong ever. You can always get a toothbrush, almost always. Okay, always is a bit extreme. But given that we live in such a connected world now, it is so easy to resolve your problems that your problem goes away overnight. Less time, 10 minutes. You can fix your problems in 10 minutes. The other thing, which I hold to is to always, always, always be nice to the service people, no matter what. And again, maybe not a hack, so much a philosophy, but anybody you interact with, you are a guest in their home. And I don't care if you're standing at the rental car desk or the hotel desk, or it, it doesn't matter when you are traveling, you are a guest in someone's home and you should act like it. Yeah. Well, that might lead perfectly to question number seven. I'm going to come back to six, but okay. what's one thing you wish every American knew? <laughs> Be nice to everybody. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's not fair. What's one thing I wish every American knew? It's hard for me to distill Americans into every man. Maybe that's what I wish they knew. I'm sort of thinking out loud here, but one of the things that that we experience as travelers when we leave our home country is that we knock up against these ideas about how people perceive Americans, right? People think Americans are going to be X. They think we are going to, I don't know, drive big cars, drink coarse beer, watch a lot of television, we're big in sports. These are all terrible cliches. No President Obama. <laughs> For example. Um, so they have all these. So we, we go into the world, we encounter these people and they they present us with their cliches about us. And we're like, but that's not me. I'm not that person. America is much more complicated than that. We're a nation of immigrants. We have a diverse range of religions. Our families come in a billion different configurations. All of these things they're true everywhere. They are true everywhere. So when we step into the world, we have ideas about what it's going to be like in Vietnam, say, but we, our cliches are wrong. They're always wrong. They may be true for a tiny sector of the population or even a majority of the population, but they are just as complex as we are. So I guess this is a long way of saying that I wish all Americans did not oversimplify their view of what exists outside of our home country. Okay. Thank you. Question number six, what's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? (laughs) So I just actually just started swimming again. Um, and I had been a swimmer when I was in college. They put in a brand new Olympic swimming pool my first year in university. And I was in California, so it was an outdoor pool. And I used to swim every day at lunch. And in November, I guess it was, last year, I started going to the gym regularly. Now, we lost that. The one thing that was left to me was the pool. The pool is considered safe. Apparently taking a chlorine bath kills the COVID. So I've been swimming half a mile three times a week. And it's great. 
there's two things it does. One is that like, I'm getting totally jacked. <laughs> That's super fun, right? At 56 yeah. to be like, you should check out my biceps. I am jacked, man. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that, and I remember this when I started, when I started going back to the pool, I told the lifeguard, like, I'm gonna be here for like five minutes. Cause I got nothing. And now I swim half and half a mile. Right. And so it's been about six months, I guess that I've been doing this. Um, but now that I can swim half a mile, it's an incredible meditation. When you swim, I'm not good at sitting still and meditating. I'm not, it's not a thing I do well. So that idea of like sitting and centering, I try, I do yoga sometimes and I've tried to make my mind shut up, but it runs around when I get in the water and swim laps, the hive of bees inside my head settles down and I just swim. And that has made me feel like, Oh, I'm in it for the long run. So it's really helped. Yeah. And I think that that, that, um, there's a reason when you go to the pool, it's full of old ladies, right? They're like, this is what we're doing. This is, we're here. And they are living long lives and they are getting in the water. And I think it really helps. Yeah, that's awesome. I did read your blog post that you wrote for the end of 2020. And mm. you talked about, you made a comment, something to the effect about gravity too. about Yes. The yeah. yeah. It takes the weight off your joints, right? And so- it, it just helps. Like you, you, you lift a little bit, your brain says, we're doing this thing. We're doing this one thing. You cannot get distracted in the water, right? That's yeah. why you round. Um, so you need to pay attention and all you're paying attention to is your breathing and the motion of your body through the water. I love that. It's super awesome. And it makes me feel great. I get out of the water and I'm like, I'm ready for whatever. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Number eight What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Oof. <laughs> I'm going through a divorce right now. <laughs> um, so I have some thoughts on this that maybe I should be a little bit circumspect. Uh, I think that you have to listen. You absolutely have to listen and you have to tell the truth. These are two things that are critical and you have to tell the truth about what you want and what you need and whether or not you can provide it to the person who is asking you for those things. It is okay for the answer to be, no, I cannot give you that. But if you do not tell the truth about it, your relationship is going to suffer. So being authentic to about what you're able to provide, telling the truth, and then listening when people are saying what they need and responding kindly and honestly to that, I think is absolutely a hundred percent critical to having a relationship that survives. Mm. Yeah. And uh, as I hear what you're sharing, I think about the, perhaps the challenge of telling the truth, not only to our partner, but perhaps also to ourselves. Absolutely. That is absolutely what I mean. Like you have to be honest with yourself about it too, which is why I say it's okay to say, no, I can't give you that because it may be that you're in a situation where you really want to be able to do something for your partner and you can't do it for whatever reason. And that should be okay. And you're conflicted because you want to give them what they want, but you know, in your heart that you're not going to do it or, or you're burying that truth for yourself because you want to tell them what they want to hear. And that's not good enough. Telling people what they want to hear, not good enough. You have to tell the truth and you have to tell the truth to yourself too. Yes. hundred percent. Challenging. Yeah. 
Uh, okay. Last question here is about money. Mm-hmm. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? Hmm. There's a really funny old Saturday Night Live clip with Steve Martin in it. And he's, he's doing this infomercial kind of skit hmm. where basically it says, don't buy shit you can't afford. Oh, yes. Do I've you know this that. clip? Yes. yes. It's, yeah. It's actually really solid financial <laughs> advice, right? Yeah. It's really funny. But I think Amy Poehler's in it and Steve Martin's in it. And there's some infomercial voice. And the, the, whole, t- the whole takeaway is don't buy shit you can't afford. And they're, Steve, Poehler, uh, Steve Martin and Amy Poehler are like, what if I want this thing, but I don't have any money? And then the guy who's the voiceover says, well, then you don't buy it. <laughs> um, and I, they, they present it in this very comic infomercial kind of way. But I think it's legit. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, don't buy shit you can't afford. Don't spend money you don't have. That is, that is the single most basic rule of money that, ah. Yeah. It's so silly. And I, I do think of it as being like one of the most legit financial advice things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And, and yet basically our whole culture is set up around consumerism and consumption and leveraging, you know, and things, credit. spending money we don't have. Yeah. yeah credit. credit is designed to, which makes things more expensive. Right. Yeah. And so, so I don't operate a hundred percent in a cash economy because we're not wired to do that. But I have always been very, very debt averse and I have a mortgage on my home and that's it. Everything else is paid for. I do not carry debt. Debt is an anchor that will bog you down. Now, I understand that there are a great number of economic complications and that I am in a position of incredible privilege to be able to say that I have a life where I do not carry consumer debt. Circumstances, student loans, ugh. Uh, you know, I paid off my student, I had student loans, but this is, this is the thing I strive for. And this is the thing that I really, that's what sets you free is not having a lot of stuff, but not having the, um, the debt obligations really, really help. Yeah. And then, and then it makes me think too, about how, even though it is the societal norm to take on this debt, uh, I think about that saying, uh, uh, Krishnamurti. I forget exactly how it's worded, but about it's not a measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yes. Right. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean it's sane (laughs) or something. So. Yeah. When I, um, I had a meeting with a mortgage broker when I bought my house and he said, I can't find anything on you. Did you file for bankruptcy? And I was like, dude, I don't have any debt. That's why you don't find it. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a very, um, it's not a conventional status, but since I realized I had to, you know, at a, at a very young age, I wrote a book about this, <laughs> about how at a very young age, I need to figure out some really complicated stuff. I've been debt averse for a very long time because I realized that it was my responsibility to take care of myself. And if I was dragging around a lot of debt, that was not going to happen for me. Yeah. 
So I dropped out, of, you know, I went to college, but I also dropped out of college repeatedly. It took me seven years to get through college because I paid for it myself and I would attend a term and then it would run out of money. And I would be like, oh shit, I can't pay for this anymore. And I would go get a job for a while and I would save up enough money to go back and do another term. So I didn't come out of school with, I had a little bit of student debt at the very end of it when I transferred out of the community college system to university, but I was debt averse through that whole process too. Now, education has gotten way more expensive than it was when I was a kid. So maybe this isn't a fair analogy, but it is a thing that I did, right? And that was what available to me at the time to be like, okay, I'm gonna take a term off and I'm just gonna like make sandwiches and I'm gonna do this job and pay my rent and save as much as I can until I can pay tuition to go back. So, you know, uh, not caring, not being in debt to the man, I think is, is liberating in all kinds of ways. You have to do some funny things. You may not get to do things on that schedule you would like, but it certainly frees you up. Yeah. Okay. And the final question here is about, um, if people want to learn more from you, uh, or connect with you, uh, of course they can buy your book, hopefully at their local bookseller, but also on amazon.com or other online retailers. Um, but how else? Um, nerdseyeview.com. Yep. That's, that's it. I'm, I'm easy to find on all the nerds. I view things. Uh, they almost all lead to me. Although there's another guy who's a financial planner who has a column under the name. So you might end up with him. And for a while there was a, a Richmond, California rapper who released an <laughs> album called nerds. I view. And I was getting his email for a bit. That was pretty fun. Actually. I, I traded some email with him. It was really sweet and funny. <laughs> So, but actually just, if you go to nerdsiview.com, there is a contact panel on there. I'm on Twitter at nerdsiview. That's actually a perfectly fine way to say hello. Awesome. Uh, you know, I've been getting email from readers, folks who have read my book and I love, love, love that. It's been really wonderful. So Pam at nerdsiview is my email. I'm easy to find. Awesome. Okay. And then before we transition to the final part of our interview, I also want to let you know that as a thank you, for making time to talk with me and, and everyone who's listening today. Uh, I've gone to the micro lending site, kiva.org, and I've made a micro loan to a, a woman entrepreneur in Timor-Leste named Batugade, who, uh, no, she, her name is Lucia. She lives in Batugade in Timor-Leste, and she's going to use this uh, to buy agricultural supplies that she will then use to um, sell produce in her local community, improve the quality of life for herself, her family, and, and people where she lives. So thank you for giving me a reason to do that. Fantastic. Paid forward. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. So the final part of, of our interview here, and, and before we even go there, how are you doing? You doing I'm, okay? I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm good. good. Okay. Well, I've got, I've got a number of questions about writing, but I want to be sure we talk about this. So maybe I'll start with it, which is statesider.us. Oh, yay. I'm so glad you asked about it. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about Tell me about that. What is it? So, so you know where I rambled on and on about how Americans are complicated? <laughs> when you asked me that question, Statesider US is a project that I work on with two friends, Andy Murdoch and Doug Mack, both of them fine, fine writers and writers that I know from doing travel. And we collaborate on this project that basically wants people to think about the complex, beautiful nature of America in a much less binary sort of way. So we aggregate, we collect stories about America that are maybe not seen so often in your average media diet. And we commission original pieces, essays, 
for people to write about the complicated way that American identity plays out. Mm. Interesting. We love it. It's been great. It's so fun to work on. And I have become weirdly, increasingly patriotic as I work on this thing because it makes me really appreciate the depth and complexity of the American experience. That's fantastic. What I wonder if you can share even just a thumbnail, like what's a, an example of the kind of story that someone might read more about if they visit statesider.us? Yeah. So we, I, I just had an editorial meeting with the guys last night and we hold up this particular example. I'm sorry, I can't remember the source where it came from. I think it might've been in the San Diego newspaper. They wrote a piece, excuse me. There's a story in there about these Punjabi long haul truck drivers. So their first, second immigration, first, second generation immigrants to the US. And they do these long haul routes in these trucks and the truck stops have evolved so that they're feeding so that you can go to these truck stops and get Punjabi food. Wow. Right. And so there are a million things that I like about that. One is that it makes you want, like, what's a Punjabi person in the first place, right? Like, what is that? That's not something that maybe we know about thinking of, like on a regular, it's not a, a regular archetype that we encounter. It's specific, not general, mm-hmm. right? Punjab is a province state in India. So it is a very specific region. There's a certain type of food that they like to eat. How is it that they're in this occupation that we have a lot of American mythology about, right? Truck drivers are, there is a mythology around the American truck driver. And now there's a large immigrant population changing the landscape of what that looks like in the US. I love that. I just love that. It's so interesting. I also, I interviewed, uh, so he was, I interviewed Edward Lee. He wrote a book called Buttermilk Highway. He's Korean American. And he was just like this punk from New York. And now he runs a Southern restaurant in Lexington, Kentucky, and he cooks Southern food. So how is it that the son of Korean immigrants embraces this cornerstone of American cuisine? What does he bring to that? Why is he interested in it? What's that play? What's that play out to be? Uh, his book is great. I highly recommend it. It's fantastic, and he's an interesting, funny guy. And you know, he grew up in New York, and uh, so it's it's really so. I like these these all of us at Statesider. We like these layered things that think about the people who make up America, what they do with long term American traditions, how they make those things change the evolution of what it means to be an American. Interesting. Those, I noticed in both of those examples, food was present in both. (laughs) Is this a theme in in a lot of the writing or? It It is. We, we collectively, we really sort of lean towards food writing. A lot of travel writing can talk a little too much about destination and not enough about history, but we're also really interested in the sort of what happened here sort of story you know, there were slave ships found off the coast of South Carolina, I think it was, and they had been there for hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years, and they were only recently discovered. So we look at stories like that, too, which enrich our view of American history. Um, but we're also always hungry. <laughs> yeah, I think of someone, if you haven't 
connected with, he might be, uh, he might be a great contributor. He was a guest on this show, a guy named Matthew Gavin Frank, and he wrote a book called the mad feast. And it was about American, the, the uniqueness of cuisine around the country It's really interesting, but he's, um, I think he's a kindred spirit. Yeah. That's our kind of thing for sure. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Awesome. So you've been blogging since 1998. Yeah. That is amazing. How, so let me ask, has it been more or less continuous since 98? Yeah, it has actually. I've slowed, I slowed down last year because I was working on a book, right. I was working on this big project. And so also I've been grounded like many of us and I have less to say, I feel very strongly that a person should update their blog only when they genuinely have something to say. So given that, I've sort of dialed it back over the last year or two. But yes, I have been at it consistently. I have almost, I have, you know, 20 years of archives on my site. I've migrated it from various platforms. It's been on the one it's on now for, might be 15 years now. Wow. So this is something... Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions just to hopefully satisfy my personal curiosity about this, because <laughs> I think blogging is, is potentially really powerful. And it's despite all the advances that we're making, if you want to call them advances in you know, social media technology and what we're now doing with podcasts and more video online and stuff like this, blogs seem like such a unique way of cr- like creating and conveying information that's, I don't know that timeless is the right word, but that it's not, I don't think they're in any danger of disappearing just because other modes of communication are being introduced. But I wonder how have you seen, like, how has your blogging changed over the decades? I'm a much better writer for starters, right? Like I really taught myself how to write by doing this, you know? So when I go back and look at my old stuff, I'm like, oh, I should take that down. Uh, I have taken very few things down though. Like for me, it's really, I'm like, I like the idea of it as a historical record of my evolution as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, the, the, just, just the mechanics of the writing have improved. I've also become more transparent over time. I share a lot more things and that is in direct relation to the rewards I've received for being increasingly more transparent. Uh, It's been every time I have posted about something deeply personal, I'm met with this wellspring of affection and support and uh, kindness. And so the more honest I am in what I put out there, the more my community responds in kind. And so I'm somewhat less fearful of telling the truth, (laughs) I think is what I want to say. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that because I know so much of what takes place online, you know, that's not cat videos (laughs) or (laughs) or unboxing videos. It, it, It seems that there's a lot of really mean spirited things, the trolls and the haters and, you know, people who are criticizing each other. But I'm glad to hear that your experiences as you share like authentically and vulnerably that people seem to respond to that. Yeah. There's definitely a, a 
seedy underbelly to the web. Absolutely. And we've just seen the results of that in Washington. But I have personally experienced very, very little of the kind of negative stuff that you hear about. And that does not mean it doesn't happen. I have friends who have really had their share of it. And perhaps I am just not important enough to harass. Uh, I, I don't know, right? I don't know what the game is. I don't really understand it. I have only had to report a person to Twitter's extremely unresponsive um, moderation tank once, right? Like I've only really been harassed one time on the web. I've had some very heated disagreements, but I would not say that any of them have been dangerous, harmful, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I, 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 and I like to think it is because I am presenting a candid, authentic face and I could be totally wrong about this though. So I heard you say that your view is that people should really only blog when they have something to say. Mm-hmm. One thing I wonder is, have you, have you ever taken the kind of the approach of, of thinking through in like a formal way? Um, who am I writing for? What do they want to know about? Should I have an editorial calendar to which I attempt to answer their questions and help them solve their problems and so forth? Like, have you approached it that way? Or have you just been like, Hey, I'm inspired today. I'm going to rip off a blog post, you know, like fire off a blog post. Right. So it depends on, on for my personal blog, I know who I'm writing for exactly because they tell me, uh, huh right? Like they are real people. Like there are very specific people. And, and I've been at it for a long time. And I actually just had an exchange with a woman on Twitter who I know was one of my readers 20 years ago. Her name is Marilyn. I know she's a real, like, I know who I'm writing for. So I don't have to run up a whole market research thing. Right. Because for 20 years, I've been writing for Marilyn. Uh Right. And, and, and a handful of other people. Right. And sometimes I hear from them. They tell me, I know who they are. This is an incredible gift, right? To know who those writers are. So I do think about who my audience is Mm -hmm. and I think about them not as an amorphous mass. I think of them as Marilyn and Dylan and I can name them, Uh (laughs) right? They're real people. My friend, Sal. Uh, So, you know, they're they're 100% complicated humans who aren't a target market. Uh, So because I've never been, I've never used my platform to try to sell anything Mm -hmm. or even really to gain anything other than communication, all of that stuff has just not been relevant for me. Now I have received amazing things because I exist in that space, but they've never been the goal, right? And if the goal, if my goal is just to tell a story when I have a story to tell, then an editorial calendar is superfluous. Right. Right. Like I think one of the things when I think about social media as a product, as a platform, as a way in which we communicate, this is totally a tautology, but I'm going to say it anyway, social media is social. Right. And so when you run into your friend, when you're out walking your dog 
and you see them, you're like, oh my God, I have to tell you the story. Mm-hmm. That is how I think about my blog, right? It's that, right? It's, yeah. it's like, oh my God, I have to tell you about this thing that happened. Or yeah. I have all this stuff in my head and I would really like to share it with somebody. So you're going to listen because you're my reader. Right. Yeah. No, I, I like that. And it, no wonder people, you know, if you're writing for people and that's the way you're approaching it, it's no wonder that your interaction with them, and, you know, the response from them would be what it is. It's, it, you're not seeing this as, Hey, here's part of my marketing strategy. You know, the blog is the step one in the funnel and so forth. It's not it like is, it, I'm not selling anything yeah. at all. Really. And, you know, I, I experimented a little bit in, uh, I guess, in the 90s. I experimented with some stuff. I experimented with some affiliate sales. I experimented with a couple of things. And I didn't like the way those things required me to change my voice. I wasn't interested in that. If I wanted to work in marketing, I could spin up a separate thing or I could just get a job writing copy in marketing, which I right. do sometimes, right? Like I have a client right now where I'm writing copy for a marketing site. That's not what I wanted to do as a writer, as an artist. I didn't want to use my stories as a platform to sell them anything. I just wanted to tell a story. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Speaking of storytelling, stories are so remarkable, right? Because they're the stuff of our lives and we live them and we often don't acknowledge how significant our own stories can be, you know, this kind of thing. But as a writer, how do you think about or how do you approach storytelling? You know, that makes it feel like I should have some smart answer about process, <laughs> but I'm super organic. Uh-huh. Uh, and I am a, I am a person who I, I talked to you early, early on in this conversation about how uh, Alex asking me to write that piece about Charmelstack made me sort of peel up the corner and, and like look at things, right? Uh-huh. That I, I'm curious I'm often, I'm very, very curious. And so that if I'm writing a story, it's feeding that curiosity. So it's not so much that I'm looking at the process of creating story. I'm trying to answer a question, mm. right? And, and by answering that question, um, I end up with a story, right? Mm. So this, the, the question that I'm trying to understand is, who used to live here, for example, right? This is a broad thing, but, but you know, we were talking about Hawaii, that book that took place in Hawaii, and you can take this walk down into the Waipio Valley. Uh, and I went and, and a friend took me down to stay the night down there. But as I was thinking about the Waipio Valley, I was like, well, this has been a farmland for a long time. Who was here? Oh, Japanese farmers were here. Who was here before the Japanese farmers, right? Like this kind of like, what happened here is often my baseline question, the question that I'm trying to answer when I am writing a story. And it's not just what happened here yesterday. What happened here yesterday is maybe like I drank a beer on the beach, right? That's not a story. Right. What happened here yesterday in the period of the lifespan of this place was that the Japanese farmers are here. Why are the Japanese farmers gone? Right? Where did they go? So I'm very interested in, I'm, I'm always trying to understand the history of a place or how it got to be the way it is. And that's the process. And so I guess there's, there's a fair bit of research that I do. I do a lot of reading, but reading is writing, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was one thing I loved in reading the same river twice about the books you were reading. And I loved that as you were traveling, you were reading books about travel. 
Yeah, and now I really like to read fiction that's written by authors from the place I'm going, for example, or a narrative that's written by people who have been there. Like I really like to read about the place I'm going while I'm there. I read a book called The Tree Where Man was born by Peter, I'm not gonna say his last name right, Peter Matheson, he wrote The Snow Leopard, but I read this other book of his while I was in Africa and it was so fantastic because he's writing about this bit about being out in the bush and there being lions and I'm hearing the lions roaring in the night and there is this sense of them, these great writers teaching me how to write about the place while I'm in it. Mm. And so I like to sort of stew in that and, and have that be part of what I'm experiencing while I'm in a place. It also, it really informs the work I'm doing. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense because I don't think it, it's always obvious or that we always think of it, but writing is always a product of place in some way, mm. right? It's, yeah, I think so. It, it takes place in some place, the act of writing, the act of reading, it has that yeah. and so forth, which I do have a question for you about travel writing. I know it's its own genre and category and so forth, but it, and at some level writing is writing, but how do you, how do you see, like, how do you think about travel writing? This is a super complicated question that I spend a lot of time thinking about. <laughs> okay. So there are, there are a couple of things. There's writing about place, which if you're not from that place is often travel writing. There's commercial travel writing, which is you should go to this place and do this thing. And this is what that's going to be like for you. And I've done guidebook work and that's what that is, right? That's commercial travel. That's travel writing when I tell you how to have an experience in a place. Mm-hmm. There's telling a story about some stuff that happened to you when you were in a place, which is kind of what my book is. But the stuff that I like best when it comes to this broad genre of travel writing is where the setting is a very important character in the narrative you know the setting in my book is it's all really important that these things are happening in these places but um the story's not about the travel it's about something else mm-hmm. right so maybe the story is about did you read the orchid thief by susan orlean i didn't so she goes, it's, a, it's an amazing book. And they go knocking around looking. There's a lot of travel in that book, but it's really about this crazy dude who steals orchids, right? And so the, the, the travel, I want the travel to be secondary. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. Uh, forgive me for taking so long to get there. What I want is for the travel to be the thing that moves the reader through the story, but not the main thing. I don't care that a writer went somewhere ever. So what? Right? What happened to them when they were there? What did they learn? What did they experience? How did their view of the world change? You know, all good writing isn't about just like what the writer's doing. You know, it's not a what I did on my summer vacation thing. And I think travel writing can fall in that when it's not good. It falls in this, like what I did on my summer vacation thing. It has to transcend the notion of travel purely. Right. I was, when I wrote this book, I was wondering where it was going to sit on the shelf, you know, like, is it going to live in memoir? Is it going to live in some, some 
a chiclet section, you know, like where's it going to live? And, and I'm not surprised that it ended up in travel and I'm not sorry that it did. But to say that it's a travel book is to do it a disservice to put it purely in this notion of the idea of it being purely about a journey. Yeah. Right. So, and that's not to say also that, you know, you read Shackleton, that's travel writing. It's insane what they went through, right? You read that book South and it's like, that's a travel book, but it's also a book about a remarkable survival at the end of the, at the end of the world. So yeah, I'm rambling a little bit because it's just, it's like, I think about it a lot. Yeah. It's I, I, I can see that there's plenty of nuances in that for sure. Mm, yeah. I'm curious too about your work as a freelancer, mm-hmm. because as you know, very few people, there's many aspiring writers, <laughs> but very few who actually have the, whatever the talent, the courage, the perseverance to make a living doing it. And I know that freelancing, it, it has its own set of pressures and considerations. And I wonder if you'll speak to what, what are some of those and how do you manage them? How do you, how do you overcome them? Right. So I, I'm freelance mostly because nobody will give me enough vacation. Right. So again, I have this sort of terrible wanderlust. Uh, and so it was really hard for me to think about the idea of taking a job where they were going to give me two weeks vacation, three weeks vacation, a year, this kind of stuff. So I was like, that's not going to work for me. That traditional model is not going to work for me. I can't, I can't do that. I can't be held down like that. That's going to make me crazy. So that's the, the underlying reason why I'm freelance. The challenges of it you know, are numerous. One is that I have to constantly look for work. Uh, I have to find all these, I have to find things to do. I have to find ways to pay my bill. I have to find clients, I have to do all this stuff. But my not so secret, dirty secret is that much of my work is as a technical writer. And that's how I pay my bills. People get this idea when you talk to them about being a travel writer that you're swanning off across the planet and writing beautiful newspaper columns and ending up in, you know, the back pages of shiny, shiny magazines and stuff. And I get to do that. I've been in the seat back pocket on your airplane, but chasing that stuff down all the time is exhausting. And also a lot of it is just write and copy, right? It goes back to that when we talked about what travel writing is how you do a thing in a place. If I'm going to write about how you do a thing in a place, I can make a lot more money describing how you use a tool to do a thing. Yeah. And so I split my work. I split my worlds and I work on technical projects where I describe how you do a thing in a place. And that thing is very technical. And that allows me to be a little bit picky about the kind of work I pick up in the travel space and to pay my bills because it pays a lot better than being a freelance creative person who's selling occasional travel essays on um, my meditation retreat, for example. Right. And it's not, again, that they're just publishing is kind of a mess and to be liberated from that allows me some possibilities. I'm, I'm really, again, you know, when you talk about how I had this gig doing captions at Microsoft that opened a, that was very much your standard copy, but that opened a world of opportunities for me because I got to put that I worked at Microsoft on my resume in the nineties. And um, just to be clear, I was never staff. I did not make a fortune on stock options. I was just a temp 
Um, but what happened was that all these other things like writers are valuable in all kinds of spheres. It's not just the, the, the words on your screen were written by someone. Yeah. You know, when we log into Zoom to have this call, to have this conversation, and your engineer uses his tools to edit this, the instructions on how to do that were written by somebody who's just like me. And that's where I make my living as a freelancer and this other stuff I do as sort of passion projects on the side. Right on. What, um, what advice or encouragement would you give someone who is maybe where you were 20 or even 30 years ago, who has always probably leaned toward writing. They've loved to read. They think that this is what their future holds. They're not quite sure how to go about it. Maybe specifically they want to write a book. So what advice or encouragement would you give to someone who wants to be a professional writer and maybe also who wants to write books? Right. So those are two really different paths, just to be clear, writing a book and being a professional writer. Like they're, they're very different projects. There are so many jobs for writers. There are so many jobs for writers. I didn't, don't think I knew that when I sort of accidentally fell into it. My, that gig as a caption writer was very much an accidental thing. I was working retail, selling art supplies. I went to art school and I was selling art supplies. And a friend of mine came to work one day and he was like, my mom's at Microsoft and they need smart people to come and work on this thing. Do you want to test in? And I was like, what do what? What? Uh, sure, because I'm making minimum wage working retail, right? So I went and took a writing test because I was good with words and they hired me to work on this project. And it just became my whole, my career just sort of fell into this path that, you know, allowed me to do a lot of other interesting things. So I think that it's possible we, when we say we want to be writers, we are limited in the vision of what that looks like, right? We think of it as being a very specific thing. Now, if you had, it 20 years ago, I would not have said that I would not have expected to say that I was making my living writing instructions for a very complicated project management tool, right? Mm -hmm. Which is one of my clients right now. They do this very complicated project management tool and I write the how-tos for that. And I wouldn't have connected the dots between being a writer and that. So I think I would advise that people expand their view of what it means to be a writer because that makes things possible. And it does not mean that you have to sacrifice the creative things at all, because I haven't. Uh, but it does mean that you get to do more than write for poetry magazines for $25 a piece, right? Yeah. You still get to work as a writer. And one of the things I learned, the skills really, they cross, they, they, they feed each other. And I had been tech writing, tech writing, instructional stuff. And I got hired to write a guidebook. And so I was like, I don't know how to do this. And I embarked on this trip to go write this guidebook. And about three days in, I realized that I was just writing instructions on how to do a thing. And I knew exactly how to do it because I had been training on how to do it for my 10 previous years as a technical writer. Like give them the key information, make it easy for them to understand, tell them what they need to do, right? It was the same thing. The words were, there was a little bit more room for decoration, but the process was the same. Yeah. So 
You know, it's you feed the curiosity, you make it simple and you think, what does that mean to be a writer? We have a very again, we have this very specific idea. You know, I watched a bunch of movies in the 50s about uh, from the 50s about artists. Right. You watch these men. They're all this very specific type of artists. Right. They're always like wearing a beret and living in Paris and, you know, smoking having a cigarette. Yes, smoking <laughs> yeah. cigarettes and yeah. and running out of money, but somehow they have a tab at the bar, like this very right. romantic view of what it means to be an artist. But um, it's not like that. <laughs> it's one thing you do in, in an adult world. It happens for some people. It really does. And bless them. I, I envy them tremendously. But for most people, they have to find a place to fit that in their lives. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a tremendous compromise because it can still feed the, the part of your brain that wants to be making things. Yeah. Well, I know, I don't know how we've talked for an hour and a half and we haven't, <laughs> and maybe this can be, I, I don't know how we've talked for an hour and a half and we haven't talked about the ukulele, but maybe mm-hmm. this is, so maybe we can wrap up by talking about the ukulele. And then if there's anything yeah. that we haven't for somehow, if there's anything that somehow we haven't covered <laughs> that you right. do want to also right. talk about. Right. So what, tell me about the ukulele. How does it fit in your life? So sadly, my band broke up a couple of years ago um, and we wouldn't be out performing now anyway. Uh, so I, I miss it every, every day. I miss making music with other people. It was crazy fun. But what happened was I went on this trip to Hawaii with my family, my mom and uh, my brothers and the extended family. It was my mom's birthday and we did this big family trip. And we went to Hawaii and my brother had checked out all these CDs from the library of Hawaiian music. And we started listening to all this music when we were at the rental house. And this sound is everywhere in Hawaii. This particular sound is everywhere in Hawaii. And I just got the fever. (laughs) So I was, so I came back to, to the mainland after this trip and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to learn how to play the ukulele. I think this would be really fun. I wanted to do something different, you know, I just like, this seems like, I, I think I would enjoy this. And I started shopping for, um, I wanted to, you know, buy myself one. I didn't have an instrument. I didn't have, I was just, I just got this crazy idea in my head that this was a thing I wanted to do. And these friends of mine were bugging out for the year and I was standing on their front porch and Anthony, the dad in this family, he came outside and he said, Oh, Hey, do you want this ukulele? Wow. And, <laughs> and I said, yeah, I actually do want that ukulele. How did you know? And then about a week after that, another friend of mine who had been taking music lessons at a music store in North Seattle came back from his lessons one day and he was my neighbor at the time. And he said, I got this flyer for you for the first annual ukulele conference up in the North End. You should take these classes. So I registered for these classes and at these at this class, I the instructor said, "Oh, hey, you guys should all know about this thing called the Seattle Ukulele Players Association. We meet once a month, and everybody gets together to play." So all these crazy like <laughs> the universe wanted this for me, yeah. right? The universe wanted this for me, and then a couple of years into that, one of the guys that I knew from playing with this club. And really, we were just like summer camp, sing-along stuff. Uh, he sent out an email that said, hey, I'm, I, my band needs, we're looking for somebody who plays ukulele and can sing. We're doing this cover band project. It's fun and silly. Do you know anybody? He sent it to the list for the club, if anybody would like to come and try out. 
um, were looking for people to come try out. And I was like, yeah, what the hell? I'm going to go try out this thing. So I went and I played with these guys for an afternoon and they said, see you next week. And I was like, what? No, wow. that's not how any of this happens. <laughs> right, no. Also, I'm going on vacation for a month. And the thing that I was going to do was I was going to write a story about this Hawaiian music camp on the Big Island. So I actually had been planning to take a month off to go do these music classes and write this story. Um, and they were like, well, we'll see you when you get back. And I was like, we'll talk when I get back. Quit pushing me. So I came back and I was like, yeah, of course I'm going to do this. Of course I'm going to, of course I'm going to. So we played together for seven years. We recorded two CDs. We were on television four times, I think. It was wow. a scream. I, I really miss it. And on the one hand, we were just an 80s, 90s covers, cover band. Like we played classic rock from the 80s and 90s. And sometimes we played some 70s stuff. And on the other hand, it was an amazing experience. And all of the guys that I played with were the real deal. Like they were real Seattle musicians. And I was the worst person in the band. And I do not say this to degrade my skills. They were, they were lifelong musicians, lifelong musicians. And uh, a friend of mine asked me like, well, what, what advice, the same as the writer question, like what advice would you give aspiring writers? Like, what advice would you give aspiring musicians? I'm like, be the worst person in the band. Do that and play with people who want you to be better and appreciate what you bring to the table. Because I'm a much better musician for playing with those guys. And they were, it was so fun. Oh my, I really, really miss it all, all the time, all the time. And there's a, a, we played some big festivals, some big Seattle festivals. And I still think now, of a particular stage that we played on. So again, we're like a ukulele cover band. We're a little bit of a like shtick, like it's a little bit vaudeville, it's a little bit of a joke, right? And we're on this big stage with the risers and the lights and the racks going around and the sound guys over there. And there's a huge crowd in front of us. And the when, when you stand on a stage like that, you can feel the bass under your feet. Mm. And I, that, I think about that all the time. I miss that. It was so thrilling. And we would go and we would play and people would stare at us gobstruck. Like they couldn't <laughs> believe what we were doing because we were playing these little tiny kind of a joke instrument. And our drummer was playing a cajon, which is a box. He didn't play a full drum kit. He played this small. So everything was scaled down, but we played everything super straight. We didn't like rearrange it for the ukulele. We didn't, and so people would show up and they would be like, what's gonna happen here? And then we would do like this full guns blazing rock and roll show. And they, they would just be like, what is, what is, what happened? <laughs> what, awesome. what did you guys do? We played a party once where the sound guy was like, you guys are not supposed to be like this. And we we're like, this is what we do. That is awesome. <laughs> it was really, it was such a ride and you know, I'm still friends with my bandmates because of course I am because we did this crazy thing together. Yeah, you've had all these experiences. We had all these experiences together. And um, spoiler alert, I actually have the, the other project that I've been working on and it's been parked for a while because things happened and I wrote this other book, but I have a book about the ukulele sitting on my hard drive that oh, that's I really need to pull it back out and get back to work on it. And when I yeah. find the 
when I find the thing in the attic that allows me to like do that, I'm yeah. really excited about writing what it was like to be, to go from not like I was not a musician and I, there, I am literally on two CDs and I played these big stages and I played with like the real deal kind of guys. And it was, it was a remarkable experience. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I love that. And I love the, just the creativity and the self-expression and the contribution and the fact that, you know, at the root perhaps of all art are those things. And it's just the form it takes differs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, for a while I was feeling really bad. So I went to art school, like I said, and I was feeling really bad that I wasn't actually making visual arts. Right. I was not, and I was feeling like, I was feeling really like I should be making art. And, um, my husband said to me, he said, you know, you need to chill. <laughs> it's a smart thing that he said. He was like, you are like, you work as a writer and you play music all the time. So maybe you just switched mediums, right? Maybe you could just calm down. Like you are feeding that creative process. Although I will say there is something special about doing live music specifically because it is a moment in time and it happens and when you play live music with other people and it goes really well, like you get, we get on the stage and when we were good and everything was working, it's an incredible, incredible feeling. And then it is over. It is gone. Yeah. yeah. Right. The recording doesn't, uh, we have some recordings, but it doesn't capture what it feels like to play that or what it feels like to have a crowd in front of you. It doesn't capture that. So yeah, it's I, I, I remember thinking about this one time or maybe reading about it where, you know, less it's a fraction of a percent of the music we hear is performed live. Right. Right. Because we have the ability to record. And I think in some way, because I don't know that inured is the right word, but we don't we just grow used to it. And it's the background thing in the convenience store, the department store or whatever. And I think in some way we lose the appreciation of when music is performed live, how special that is. Yeah. Yeah. And when you go to a live show and you see something happening, I, I was at a, the last live music show that I went to was in a, in a club here in Seattle. I saw Wayne Horowitz and his combo and they played a bunch of selections from Masada, John Zorn's Masada project. And they were incredible. It was incredible. And my friend sitting next to me was like, this is like, we're in a basement in Brooklyn in 1962 like it was exceptional it's the last show i saw live before everything shut down and it reminded me of that magic of live music you know i could i could pull that stuff up i could buy a cd but there was there's something else that happens with live music that is uh one of my bandmates was like oh yeah you got the pixie dust from you know, you have the live music yayas. I was like, what is that? What is that? Ed? What's that from? And he's like, that's live music, you know, because I didn't know. I, I hadn't yeah. had that experience. And, you know, I remember the first time we played a really solid show together. I was just high. Like, I was totally yeah. high. And there were some times when I couldn't sleep. I couldn't wind down. We'd come back from these shows and I'd just be like vibrating. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that magic that happens. You get like this incredible adrenaline rush. Yeah. you know, and it, and then it's gone, you know, yeah. it's, it's and it true. will never, I mean, we, you can always perform music later, but that particular yeah. expression is, is, is a moment. Yeah. It's a moment. And there, there's something super magical about that. And I'm really excited that, you know, I got to experience it in this weirdly comical way, but it's also very, very real. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thanks. Fun. 
Well, I, Pam, I, I have loved our conversation. And as Me I said too. earlier, I Me loved too. your book. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. I know we've covered so much already and we've gone a little over the time we said we would, but is there a final thought, anything that you would leave leave me and anyone listening with? Yeah, actually there is. <laughs> there are two things. Okay. One is please, one is go get my book. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to make myself be that person who's, who remembers to market the book, right? Like, <laughs> like go get the book. Um, and if you can get it from an independent bookstore. And then the other thing is, you know, going all the way back when I thought about like what things are about when you said, what's life about? And I, I was, this is very pedestrian. I was thinking about how right now it's about how I don't want to get COVID and I don't want to give it to anyone else. Right. And so I think we, I want everybody to just take care of each other. Mm. That's what I want. I want people to take care of each other. Yeah. Beautiful. I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you. I want that same thing. And for what it's worth, I commit to do my part or to do my best to do my part, to take care of others. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the school for good living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people, whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones. There are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.